0: Welcome back to season two of 824. I am still on the same mission and journey to discovering the connections of the mind, body, and spirit as it's related to social justice work. I am a bit closer to discovering the connections, but not quite there. I still have more questions to ask and more scholars to talk with. Thank you for sticking with me on this journey and hopefully your questions are being answered too. I am your host, Dr. Valen S. Jordan, and this is 824, the Spirituality and Social Justice Podcast. In this interview, Abu Gunde, scholar at Indiana University, Bloomington, asks us to consider how do our unresolved traumas that are immediate and ancestral shape us? This interview presents all of us with an opportunity to consider what is our individual and communal part in responding to the suffering of sentient beings. Continue listening now. So welcome to this episode of 824. Today, my guest is Dr. Maria hamilton Abagundé. She is the founding director of the Graduate Mentoring Center and visiting lecturer of African diaspora studies at Indiana University Bloomington. Dr. Abugunde is a poet, ancestral priest in the Yoruba Orisha uh, approach and tradition. She's a doula and a Reiki master. Her research and creative work respectively approaches the earth and human bodies as sites of memory and always with the understanding that memory never dies, it is subversive. So, welcome to this episode.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation and having me this afternoon.
0: I am really, really excited for all that you were going to share with us. So, let's uh, get started here and hear a bit about your work, uh, both what you engage uh, scholarly and energetically.
1: All right, that's a good way of putting it. Um, And so although you say those things separately, I see them more and more and particularly in this time as being very well integrated. So as you noted, I am a faculty member in African-American and African diaspora studies. Um, I'm a doula. There's a range of things that I do. And so I approach that work particularly around memory, trauma, and healing uh, from an art and ritual perspective. And so I'm I want to know, and I'm always asking people, um, how do our unresolved traumas that's immediate and ancestral, how do they shape us? And so asking people to consider, particularly right now in this global pandemic that we are um, living, how in fact do we understand our historical events? Um, how do we interpret them? How do we make meaning of them? How is our inability um legally or for other reasons? our inability to do any of those things? How do they shape us? and so the work is always multi layered um It is always very deeply personal because I do not um understand my own existence separate from other people, but I also understand that in order for me to be connected and to even see the connection that there is a level of work that I need to do on myself and with myself first. Um, and so I teach courses on memory trauma and healing and also community um, and social justice and, and issues and contemporary social issues and the questions and the text are always geared towards helping students place themselves within a lineage, um, place themselves within a time and understand their relationship and responsibilities to themselves and each other.
0: I'm really hoping we'll have a chance to circle back to learning more (laughs) about trauma and healing. Um, And I find it incredibly fascinating the way in which, one, you engage memory, but that your students are engaging memory and thinking back in terms of, I guess, origins of history, right? Uh, yes. Looking back and as, as a point of reflection and healing for themselves as they think about their relationships to other people. Yes. Um, I, I find that work to be incredibly fascinating. So how did you come to this? Well, hmm. Like, was there a moment for you that you were just... in? fully engaged in memory and healing and trauma. Like this is the work that I'm going to spend
1: my life doing. (laughs) I um, I don't know if any of us who do work in this manner uh, that we choose it easily. Mm -hmm. And so the reality of my own life is that I am a survivor of multiple types of violences done to me and done to the communities in which I lived and continue to live. And so if there's a starting point for this work, it actually began uh, more, I would say, than 40 years ago. And when my mother died, and at that age, for whatever reason it was, uh, perhaps it's because I come from a family of seers and healers, but for whatever reason it was, I knew at that moment to interpret and make meaning of my mother's suffering and death, she was ill for a very long time, to interpret it and make meaning of it in a way that uh, ended up being a story that she had sacrificed her life for us. And that in doing so, she had freed myself and freed my sister from what was potentially a very, very difficult lives. And very limiting lives in terms of the possible choices that we had. And that was very disconcerting to my elders and the older people in the community when I first spoke that out loud. But I understood that, that there was a sacrifice made and that suffering was part of it. But I also understood that because of that sacrifice, I did not have to suffer. And I also knew that in looking at my life that way that I could choose to not live as a victim or victimized or live tethered to that particular history and narrative. Mm-hmm. So most of what I what I do is helping people when they are ready, right? Because that's a process to come to that particular understanding when they are ready to begin seeing how and where they have agency in their own lives to craft, recraft, to create a narrative that puts them at center in choosing, and choosing what it is they need to do to do more than survive, right? To do more than survive, um, whatever it is that has happened to them. And so it's been a long time. Not that is the defining moment for me. And then there are several other things in terms of the spiritual work and process where I understood that this was a calling and that I could not walk away from that.
0: Mm-hmm. So that last piece that you talked about with agency and to see where we have agency, um, how does one recognize when they have agency?
1: That's very complex too, um, because I don't know if you can always recognize it um, immediately, and for each person, it's going to be different. Some of it is when you are able to speak out loud about the things that have harmed you yeah. and to not be concerned with how you are viewed, how people will respond to you, because the need to speak out loud and to articulate and to make visible what has been done and how it has been done is more pressing than whether or not you will be liked or loved. Mm. But that is a process and it is a practice And it can't be done alone, although many times we are doing it alone. It helps to have community. And so, for example, if you would permit me, the first uh, book that collection of poetry that I ever wrote called Things I Do Not Speak. Mm
0: -hmm. And so that
1: gives you an idea of the, the subject and topic. Um, What I did was I invited, I called over a woman who was, who I thought was one of the greatest prayer warriors in the world, even though I was not in the same faith and tradition, but I had great, deep respect for her. And so I called her over and I asked her to read the book and told her I was going to um, publish this. And she came and she sat with me, and she prayed, and then she shared that she, in her own community, she was not unfamiliar with some of the events, and she said to go ahead. And I've never looked back after that. I just, I wanted her in particular um, to do that. And then I've had people, um, senior writers, um, Gwendolyn Brooks, who uh, greatly encouraged me um, through paper and through a letter to work. And so, The idea of having agency, of having control, of having the ability and the power to make sense and make meaning of one's life and circumstances is complicated and is done for me within communities that support you and who validate your voice if you need that who constantly see you and tell you that you are seen if you need that, who show up for you when perhaps sometimes even in the midst of it, you cannot show up for yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. So would that mean that healing requires community?
1: I would say healing requires community. Many, and part of what why I say that is because many of the things from which we are healing were done by community, or done in community or someone in community. And so it requires, the healing requires community, although there are, of course, segments of it in which we will be doing the healing ourselves because there's also the reflective component of even getting to the point of being able to acknowledge what has happened to us. Those are some things that are very deeply personal and can't be done in groups. We bring it sort of like initiations. You know, you there's pieces that are private and there are pieces that are public, right? And the initiation to ourselves are often very private, Right my initiation to this work, although within my family we're all suffering, was also very deeply private and personal in how I responded um, to my mother's death. And so the healing um, for me is done in community because one, we all have different gifts that we contribute to healing or to a healing. And two, it also helps us to shift that burden, um, from the person to someone else and to someplace else where we can all hold it so that not one person is bearing it. We can all hold it and we can all be witness to it. Mm-hmm. Right? And therefore we can also have a an agreement that we can all release it in the way in which is best for us to release it.
0: Yeah. I am, uh, I have so many questions. And many of them are, are sort of rooted in what it means to even bear witness mm-hmm. to
1: suffering. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and can we bear witness to suffering without acknowledging our own suffering? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then with that, right, thinking about the role of community and healing, like how do we engage in healing practices or engage in the support of someone else's healing if we haven't done our own?
1: That last question I would say is most difficult to do if we have not done our own. Now, having not done our own does not mean that we have done it in such a way where we are completely free of the memories or the pain or the hurt. It does mean that we have done enough work that uh, when we come into circle, so I'll put it this way, when I work in circle with uh, other people and other healers, we each come into the circle after having done whatever meditation or prayer or cleaning or cleansing we need to do. Because part of showing up in circle for someone is that although we know that we may have our own things to do is that at the moment that we step into circle to be present for someone else, not ourselves, that we are able in fact to move that piece of ourselves away so that we are the container for that other human being and for what it is that they are holding. And so part of the job of bearing witness, and bearing witness is something that um, I've been talking a lot about this year um, in my capacity as the director of the Mentoring Center, Graduate Mentoring Center here at IU, um, and how we bear witness to graduate students or faculty or others. And so it requires us to be able to be okay with sitting and listening to someone. And really listening to someone without interruption, without commentary, without feedback even, without suggestions. And it's also being able to say when you're unable to do that, that I'm not at a place at the moment where I can do that. And so it's difficult to bear witness fully for someone if we have not at least engaged with our own um. Joys and frailties and issues, it's not always about the trauma, right, Um, in that way. And if we're not comfortable with setting that aside so that all our attention is on and for the other amazing being in front of us, then we have to step away.
0: So... Do you teach bearing witness in your
1: courses? We do through practices and it's something that I incorporate in everything that we do. So students may engage in exercises like in the very beginning where they have to each speak for a certain um, amount of minutes about a topic. And usually it's the opening, it may be a memory and everyone is invited to listen fully and not to ask questions. Sometimes you may reflect back to the person what it is that you have heard, again, without giving any commentary, right? Um, And that it is is a practice because so often we're thinking ahead, we're listening to something and we're thinking, oh, I'm going to answer this question, I'm going to do that, this must be the next thing. But when we're fully listening to someone um, and, their their intonation how their body actually may be shifting we notice things but in the in the the bearing witness we don't make it our point to point these things out but to simply hold the space very softly for them as they tell us what it is they have experienced what it is they believe and what it is that they know it's not at for us at that moment in that process to question it.
0: Hmm. Um, I think, so I'm, I'm hearing all of this and I am also reflecting at the mm-hmm. same time, so not necessarily being a good listener,
1: <laughs> <but> also <laughs>
0: reflecting at the same time how I do this in my <laughs> own life but also considering what it fully means to bear witness in terms of social justice mm-hmm. work right as broad as social justice work is from criminal re- justice uh criminal justice reform to um, environmental justice to racial justice to understandings of the lgbtqi plus community like there are so so many sort of uh folks to the umbrella (laughs) of social Mm -hmm. justice work, that it almost feels like how can I possibly bear witness to all Mm -hmm. of it um, and be able to respond effectively. And and maybe the requirement isn't to bear witness Mm -hmm. to all of it, um, but to just bear witness to holistic understandings of suffering. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure.
1: It is what you're saying is something that I've been asking people to think about now. So your question is a, is, a, is a good one. Is it our responsibility or our task to bear witness to everything? Or is it the task to bear witness to suffering in a broader sense, which has um, great meaning in understanding how all beings suffer through different modes and for different reasons without comparing them, right? Without comparing them, which is most difficult because it is one of the ways that we understand magnitude and um, uh, several other things. The other thing is to ask oneself the question, is this thing, whatever it is, or this particular mode or spoke, um, the thing, to which I need to pay attention to or bear witness to at this moment, right? Because everything that is before us is not for us to eat or for us to see. That does not mean that we are ignoring it. It does mean, however, that in our reflections on what is the work that we really do in the world and how, we must also consider What are our gifts and where our gifts are best served? And we must also consider particularly in the largeness of the number of things that fall under social social justice. um, For me, what are our connections, spiritual connections to those particular issues? And is this the moment in which um, I am called to work on it? Or is it someone else's task at the moment? And so when we can take a little step back to think about these things and to really be clear even about why we want to do something and when we need to do something, um, we can step up to what we are called to do. Or we can step back to allow someone else who may be better positioned and who has other gifts that may actually be teachings to us to do the work that they are called to do mm-hmm. again it does ask us to consider at all times our intentions and our our connections our ability to to sit still our desire for being seen, and being heard, and the reasons for that. And so it is always a a working and a processing to think through our actions.
0: And stillness, as you said that, it just rang Mm -hmm. so loudly for me. Um, Because I say, so I'm also a Mm -hmm. yoga instructor, and I will find myself sometimes saying in class that uh, your stillness is where you are most mm-hmm. powerful. Um, and I don't necessarily always <laughs> harness that in my own being, in my own existence, even though I, I know it uh, in my mind. And uh, hearing you say it, I think is just a clear reminder about what it means to mm-hmm. get still. To be,
1: st- um, and, yeah. I, um, as you were saying that, sorry, to be still and to be quiet. Um, I recommend to everyone to read The Sovereignty of Quiet by Kevin Quashy. I, for some reason, picked up this book um, several years ago, and I read it, and I was just in awe of it. That it's beautifully written, um, for one thing, but the idea, for example, thinking about Black people, that we are always seen and shown and contextualized as being in movement right? In movement and forceful movement, right? Um, And so what does it mean, however, to think of and rethink some events in our history as moments of quiet, right? It doesn't mean, in fact, that we're not moving, um, but of moments of quiet, of reflection, of deciding, in fact, where and if we have Um, agency or responsibility to do something and what happens in a moment when you are both still and quiet what kind of clarity is possible at that moment
0: Hmm. I'm taking a long (laughs) pause because I'm I'm allowing that to sink in um but also recognizing that we're in an interview, <laughs> <laughs> and I have to sort of keep moving this along.
1: Um, love, 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 so, can love, you share? Stuff right there. Oh. Do we have to? Because yeah. we are we are in an interview, and we are doing this podcast, and people will listen to it and hear it. But what is what if we built in like a moment just right there, that pause, for people to think? And to be quiet and to still be still and then to move on. Right. It's a it's a choice in how to do things and to help people shape and reshape themselves and their understanding of the world around them.
0: And so with that, then Mm -hmm. I will take the pause and I will invite listeners to also take the pause.
1: Yes.
0: yeah um, and I think it's I appreciate that you had me do that um, because what you are saying is so powerful and um, and it, it truly does invite us to think about how we are shaped by the world around us and how we even impact the way in which mm-hmm. the world is shaped around us um, thank and so you. thank you for that <laughs> Thank you for listening to part one of this interview. Please listen in next week for part two. And as always, if you would like to contact me, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Yoga for Social Justice. Be well.